from Washington, D.C. and around the world. This is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. The top two officials in the Food and Drug Administration's vaccine office plan to step down, partly because of the Biden administration's quick decision to approve COVID-19 vaccine booster shots. Marion Gruber, director of the Office of Vaccines Research and Review, plans to retire in October. Her deputy, Philip Krauss, will retire in November. Federal News Network reports that the Office of Management and Budget yesterday launched the website evaluation.gov for agencies to show how they will use data to measure program performance. The website will record how agencies are meeting the goals set out in the Foundations for Evidence-Based Policymaking Act. Congress passed the law in 2019, requiring agencies to name chief data officers, chief evaluation officers, and statisticians. The Labor Department opened an office to oversee the modernization of state systems that deliver unemployment insurance, or UI, benefits. The Office of Unemployment Insurance Modernization manages the $2 billion of UI initiatives created by the American Rescue Plan Act. During the pandemic, states have faced an increase in claimants and fraudulent claims. The Defense Intelligence Agency, DIA, provides military intelligence to warfighters and DOD policymakers. And they're creating a new office to combine oversight, transparency, and compliance efforts. Brent Evitt is director of the Office of Oversight and Compliance at the Defense Intelligence Agency. Brent, welcome. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So the office is going to start on October 1st. What are you hoping to accomplish in this office? So what we're trying to do here is uh, combine our upstream and downstream processes for oversight, compliance, and transparency. What I mean by that, we're going to take, we're going to keep, of course, our robust intelligence oversight program that uh, protects the privacy, civil liberties uh, of American citizens, and we're going to bring into that our records management, FOIA, and declassification programs. And the goal is to have all of these elements under one roof because, uh, believe it or not, they're very closely related. And so efficiencies gained in one are shared by all. So we think we can become more efficient on the downstream processes that people uh, don't tend to think about. That's FOIA, uh, general transparency, records management, and declassification. Well, as you just mentioned, part of your mission is transparency. How does transparency and intelligence even go together? Yeah, you wouldn't think that it does, but it really does, actually. You know, because we're an intelligence agency and our, we, have a, we have a foreign intelligence and counterintelligence mission, we end up classifying a whole lot of information for the purpose of protecting the American public. So equal to that is our responsibility to share what we can with the American public. So we classify to protect the American public. We declassify to protect the American public. Every FOIA response is an effort to protect the American public. And so that combined with our intelligence oversight mission, uh, it, I, I think it's going to, well, my goal obviously is to make us the best at, at this in the intelligence community. I think we can be a very transparent intelligence agency. Obviously, that's going to look a little different than it would uh, in, in an agency that doesn't deal with a lot of classified information. But uh, I still think we have, there, there are a lot of gains to be made. So you say you're building a declassification center in the office. 
you know, why do you need to declassify information to protect the public? And I would think that, you know, intelligence people don't like to declassify things. They don't. It's, it's often an afterthought, though, because we are very aggressively pursuing that foreign intelligence counterintelligence mission that's upstream at the beginning of the life cycle of a record. When we get downstream, we, we tend to uh, not pay as much attention to declassification, but we have to consider the, the uh, record systems that we have in the institutional memory of the agency, and part of that is what I like to say, describe as cleaning out the refrigerator. We have to say this information we have, we cannot keep it forever. We have to figure out a time and a place to declassify it, to uh, destroy it under the NARA destruction schedules. That keeps us focused on the information that we need to do our job every day. So Brent, when it comes to oversight then, can intelligence agencies really police themselves? So uh, we have a lot of oversight, of course. We report to the Secretary of Defense. We report to um, the Director of National Intelligence, to the President, to Congress, and to the public. Uh, I believe that we can self-regulate, but obviously we have a lot of overseers and we have to prove every day that we can self-regulate. Uh, intelligence officers come into this business because they want to serve the American public. They feel very strongly uh, about protecting the privacy and civil liberties of all Americans because they are Americans. And I think we do that very effectively. We will, in the creation of this new office, be trying, of course, to do it even one better. So how will you measure success? How will you know that you're on the right track and that you're doing what you need to be doing? So right now, unfortunately, we have backlogs in some of these, uh, with some of these missions, with our FOIA backlog, with our declassification backlog. That is a first good way to measure success. I think um, like an athlete preparing for a race, there are a lot of things that we can do that will shave uh, time off of our process. You know, nothing about transparency is easy, especially for the intelligence community. So I'm not expecting that there are any magic fixes but we're gonna look at the whole process. We're gonna to try to make it more efficient. Success is going to be reduced backlogs, more information uh, being put into our transparency portal for the public to digest. And ultimately that builds public trust and uh, helps, the, helps uh, Americans every day have faith that we're doing what we're supposed to do. Brent, do you think other agencies within the government should have an office like this? I, I think many do have offices very similar to this. Um, we're trying something a little new here, like I said, bringing the upstream considerations of intelligence oversight, privacy and civil liberties, together with the downstream considerations like declassification, FOIA, uh, transparency, et cetera. It's, it's an experiment. I think it's an experiment that's gonna work. And uh, I think uh, down the road, other agencies will look at this and wonder if it could be successful for them too. Well, you've got uh, about a month to get things up and running, and we wish you all the, all the best. Thank you, Brent. All right. Thank you very much, Mimi. Coming next, a 2.7% raise coming for federal workers next year. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the implications for that pay increase for retention rates. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News.
The White House plans to increase pay for civilian federal workers by 2.7 percent for 2022. That raise will go into effect in January of next year. Tony Reardon is the president of the National Treasury Employees Union, which represents 150,000 federal employees across 34 departments and agencies. Tony, welcome. Thank you very much. It's uh, great to be uh, here with you, Mimi. So what are your views on the White House's calling for 2.7% federal pay raise? Well, you know, I think it is a um, very good start. I will, I will tell you that, um, it, it, as I said, it's a good start because it is clearly um, better than previous attempts um, by the uh, past administration to freeze uh, pray, uh, pay. I think, um, you know, the fact that the uh, president has just identified the 2.7%, it's not really the final word. In fact, uh, Congress can still certainly change it. And, and NTEU is standing by our original belief that the 3.2% um, pay increase has called for in the FAIR Act um, is in order. Well, before we talk about the FAIR Act, I wanna ask you about workforce retention, because you know the federal government has always had problems with that. What do you think of that 2.7%? Would that solve that issue? Well, you know, I think it will, I think it will certainly um, uh, be more beneficial than a, a pay freeze, but I think, one of the things that's really um, important to uh, recognize, Mimi, is the Federal Salary Council, for example, which is a body that um, I sit on, um, at the end of uh, 2020, put out a report and indicated that um, there is a pay disparity between the private sector and the federal sector of 23.11%, with the um, federal sector getting being on the, on the low end of that. So, you know, I think it is incredibly important that federal employees um, begin to be paid more in line with the, um, with the private sector so that you can not only recruit more easily, but that you can also retain the, the valuable and outstanding employees that we already have in the federal government. But, but Tony, I mean, of course there is a, a pay disparity, but there's also a benefits disparity. The, the federal government has great benefits. Well, the federal government certainly does have good benefits. And what I would, what I would say to you and anyone else um, who is, um, you know, kind of interested in that line of thought is that I think it is always important to recognize that, um, it, that the federal government should be a model employer and you know to simply look at it from the perspective of well you know the federal uh, uh, federal government provides good benefits they do provide um, uh, good benefits but the fact of the matter is that they are benefits that are certainly in line I believe with how um, employees should be treated you mentioned the FAIR Act this is the Federal Adjustment of Income Rates Act and it calls for 3.2 percent explain that Explain the act and why it calls for 3.2%. Well, the FAIR Act is legislation that was, uh, bipartisan legislation that was put forth um, to um, make sure that um, federal employees are going to be able to get, um, hopefully, a 3.2% increase, which I think is, as I said, more in line with uh, what federal employees um, deserve. 
And it certainly um, helps to cut in to a little bit that 23.11% uh, pay gap um, that uh, exists between the um, uh, federal sector and the private sector. You know, I think um, it's important also to recognize, uh, Mimi, that middle-class civil servants across the country are fighting the exact same inflationary pressures um, as everybody else. And so, you know, um, it, I think it is certainly fair for them to get the 3.2%, but we, we've also got to recognize something else here, I think. Federal employees stayed on the job throughout the pandemic, sometimes at great personal risk, and they kept our government functioning. And I, and I think it's important we not uh, lose sight of that. And Tony, the fiscal year is coming to an end. Why does that historically bring anxiety for federal employees? Well, um, you're exactly right. Um, there is always, um, it certainly um, in our present day anyway, a tremendous amount of anxiety um, when the appropriations process isn't complete and a shutdown is possible. Federal employees need not think back um, very far to a time when they experienced a 35-day um, uh, government shutdown. For the folks who um, were impacted by that, and it was, of course, the vast majority, that um, put them in the position of not having two paychecks. And, um, you know, I think it is something like 78% of the American population across the entire country, not just federal employees, um, who live paycheck to paycheck. And so when they lose two paychecks, it put people in a horrible position. They weren't able to pay their bills and, you know, we don't need to revisit all that, although it's important to remember. Um, but the fact of the matter is, as a result of that, federal employees are always very concerned about what's going to happen um, around September 30th. Well, Tony, uh, in the 10 seconds we've got left, what's your message to federal employees this Labor Day weekend? My message is this. It is because of you, federal employees, that our country, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, through this pandemic has been able to keep functioning um, and I, I think every single federal employee and certainly every single NTEU member, those who were um, had to go into the workplace, those who were working from their kitchen tables or their home offices or wherever you were doing your job, you did a huge service for America, for the American people. Thank you very, very much. And thank you, Tony, for joining us. Thank you. Up next, delays continuing for IT contracts across agencies. Straight ahead on Government Matters, my conversation about the role of government-wide contracts and how to streamline their use. I'll be right back. Agencies use government-wide acquisition contracts, or GWACs, to purchase technology together and lower the cost of IT solutions. The proposal submission period for one of those GWACs, the Chief Information Officer Solutions and Partners 4 contract, or CIO SB4, ended last week. But the NIH's acquisition vehicle continues to face delays. Alan Thomas is Chief Operating Officer at IntelliBridge. He's former commissioner of the Federal Acquisition Service at GSA. Alan, welcome to the program. 
Hi, Mimi. Good to be with you today. Give us an overview of the CIO SP4 government-wide acquisition contract. What's, what's the purpose? What, what are the issues here? Sure. So, uh, as you said, it's a it's a GWAC, a government-wide acquisition contract. It's one of ten or so GWACs that was created in uh, 1996 out of the Clear Cohen Act. It's a it's a big deal, right, for both industry and government. Billions of dollars of IT spending flow through these GWACs. CISP three is uh, CISP four. Uh, you know, will will be when it's in place. Certainly, one one of the top GWACs that agencies uh, that, that that agencies use. You know, as you said, uh, it, it was submitted, proposals were submitted uh, last week on September 26th. I'd say it was uh, a bit of a rocky road uh, to get there, right? There were a number uh, of amendments, including some last minute amendments um, that made it challenging from an industry perspective and I think kind of increased the burden on, uh, on industry to, uh, to respond. Why, the, why were the, there so the many amendments? What happened? Well, I, I think uh, it, it's, it's actually, it's a good question, right? Because the folks at NIH uh, followed the right playbook ahead of time, right? They did all the kind of communication you'd want to do with industry ahead of time. There were draft RFPs, there were industry days, there was a lot of dialogue and, and, uh, and back and forth. I think industry's voice was definitely heard. What I think was perplexing from an industry standpoint was with all of that feedback, Right, then, then there were a number of changes that were made uh, through amendments to the to the RFP after it was released. Right, and again, that adds you know that adds significant kind of burden and uncertainty from an uh, from an industry perspective, makes it more difficult to respond. It perturbed a number of teaming relationships. I mean, the, the government in this case made some significant changes that um, that really impacted how people how people team and how they'll be scored and evaluated on the on the proposal. So that you know that was a challenge, and I think, from my perspective, I don't know that I've ever seen an industry association like the Professional Services Council, which represents many of the largest uh, IT and professional services vendors doing business with the government, come out and essentially say, "Hey, we should take a pause here for 30 or 45 days to let industry digest all these changes." Right? That that's how significant uh, that the, the changes were. Well, let's take a step back, uh, Alan, and talk about GWACs in general. Do you think these are working? Do we have too many, too few? So, look, I think GWACs are working, right? They, they serve the intended purpose, right? They save uh, government buyers time uh, and, they, and, they and they reduce risk, right? So from that perspective, I think uh, they're working. It's an interesting question around are there are there too many or, or, or too few, right? There are only around 10 or so. So on the face, you would say, well, that doesn't seem like too many. But, you know, as I said in the opening, you know, these were created 25 years ago in legislation. I don't think the government's actually ever stepped back and done really a comprehensive overlap and gap analysis for the GWACs that exist out there to see, you know, do they really need 10? Do they need more? Do, do, they, need, do they need fewer? My sense is there's pretty significant overlap. The CISP uh, vehicles are really focused on health IT, but when you look at the spending that flows through there, uh, it's it's used for for mu a much broader mission set than just health IT. I mean, DoD and DHS are some of the largest users of the vehicle, and they're using it for mission sets well well beyond health health IT. So, given the burden that it puts on industry to respond to these GWACs, right? I mean, teaming and prep is literally years in the making for these vehicles because there's billions of dollars in uh, in spending on the line. I do think it would make sense to kind of take a step back and have somebody say like an OMB in the Office of Federal Procurement Policy, maybe do a little bit of an analysis to see, again, where there are overlaps and wh where there are gaps and if some fine tuning can be done. 
Uh, do you think that they're just locking in the already existing set of vendors that we've already got out there? Is this, is this a way of locking people out that, that could have innovative, you know, new high-tech solutions? Fair, fair question and an insightful one, Mimi. Uh, po possibly, right? And I think um, you, you've certainly heard that argument. Look, I think uh, in the latest iteration of some of these GWACs, you've seen the government try and take some steps to prevent that from being the case. It'll be interesting to see if they're if they're effective in doing that. So, for example, in the Alliant 2 GWAC that GSA has in place, right? They they um, they put some on ramps in, which means at certain points in the procurement, you can add new vendors to the mix, right? So if you get, I mean, look, this, we're, there's a lot of innovation in the technology space, right? So if you put a contract in place for five for five or ten years, you get three or four years into it. You know, there are going to be new companies with new ideas that came along. You may want to add them to the mix. So an on-ramp can help do that. You can also create a, a scope that's flexible. Uh, and I think you know both Alliant 2 did that, and I think uh, the folks at NITAC tried to do that CSP on CSP4, which allows vendors, existing vendors, to add new capabilities and bring new capabilities to market. So you think about things like uh, a robotic process automation or artificial intelligence or machine learning. You know, if you were putting something in place Five, six, seven years ago, you might not have you might not have had those as part of your as part of your scope, right? So scope flexibility allows existing vendors to bring those new capabilities to market. As I said, from my perspective, I think the jury's still out. Let's see what Alliant Two looks like in a few years. Let's see what CRSP Four looks like once it gets awarded and put into practice. Are new companies being on ramp? Are new capabilities being brought to market? Something to watch. And especially in the health IT. Uh, sector in the middle of a pandemic. We, we definitely hope for the most innovative, quickest solutions as possible. Alan, thanks so much for being on the program. Thanks for having me, Mimi. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website at govmatters.tv. And tell us what you think about this or any of our programs. You can reach us on LinkedIn, follow us to get the latest updates and see what's coming up on the show. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Katherine Roloff and Drew Friedman. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.